Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and healthcare with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. New York State is granting its first 36 licenses to sell cannabis in the state. As the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports, the program is the first of its kind in the nation to award the licenses to people who were harmed by the decades-long prohibition of the drug. And so 36 have been approved at this point. The first round of licenses are aimed at promoting social and economic equity and go to applicants that have been convicted of a marijuana offense when the drug was outlawed and who live in a community that was disproportionately impacted by the prohibition, says OCM Executive Director Chris Alexander. Equity is the cornerstone of New York's cannabis industry and we will only accept applications that demonstrate this commitment. The applicants must also have run a profitable business for at least two years and own assets like a vehicle or property and have a bank account. The licenses were chosen from over 900 applicants. They include 28 businesses and eight nonprofits. They qualified because they have a history of serving incarcerated or formerly incarcerated people. Among the nonprofits are Housing Works, begun in 1990 to fight AIDS and homelessness, and Life Camp, a Queens-based organization that helps reduce violent crimes and arrests. Founder Erica Ford is the first African-American woman head of a nonprofit to be awarded a cannabis retail license in New York. Board member Jen Metzger says no other state has done as much to try to right the wrongs of the Prohibition era. This is a momentous day, a very exciting thing to be part of. And, um, you know, it shouldn't be lost on anyone that this is really the first of its kind anywhere. Some of the shops could be open as early as the end of this year. OCM hopes to grant as many as 175 retail licenses under the program. A federal lawsuit has stalled the awarding of some of the licenses, though. A Michigan-based company sued, saying New York should not restrict the awards to applicants who were convicted of a marijuana-related offense in New York State. They argue that the requirement violates the Interstate Commerce Clause because people with marijuana convictions in other states are not included. As a result, OCM for now is not awarding any licenses in several regions of the state, including western New York, central New York, the Finger Lakes region, and the Mid-Hudson Valley, as well as Brooklyn, until the lawsuit is settled. The OCM board also approved proposed regulations for the adult use of the drug with the aim of keeping cannabis out of the hands of minors by prohibiting stores near schools or playgrounds. The regulations also strive to keep the industry independently owned and operated with restrictions on owning multiple stores. The rules are modeled on the regulations for the state's liquor industry, and they separate cultivation, processing, and distribution from retail by not allowing any one person or entity to own businesses that both produce and sell the product. Alexander says there will also be transparency in the ownership of the new enterprises. Investors will need to be clearly identified to prevent any one group from trying to gain a monopoly on any aspect of the new industry. If we're truly going to have a market that's 
decentralized, that's democratic, that's run by small and medium-sized enterprises, we need to understand who it is that's coming in to try to dominate investments. The proposed regulations will be open for a 60-day public comment period before they're finalized. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Fresh off his election victory, state controller Tom DiNapoli, a Democrat, sat down with our Alan Shartok this week to talk about the elections and the aftermath, including calls for the state Democratic Party chair Jay Jacobs to resign because of the poor showing by Democrats in congressional races. Well, look, given how blue New York traditionally has been, uh, it is concerning that uh, the red wave that many predicted was going to happen nationally really didn't happen, but it did happen in certain parts of New York. And and look, it's a combination of factors. The, 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 the reapportionment process obviously became uh, a fiasco from a Democratic perspective. And uh, I, I don't think anybody anticipated the Republicans would have, uh, certainly on the Democratic side, the inroads that they did achieve for Congress, particularly for my home base, Alan, of Long Island. Mm-hmm. You know, every congressional seat is now held by a Republican. And I don't remember the last time Long Island didn't have at least one member of Congress from the Democratic Party. So as you point out, when you consider the apparent very slim margin uh, of control that the Republicans have of the House, the notion that the losses in New York uh, were responsible for that. I mean, that that's disconcerting from a Democratic perspective. But, um, you know, uh, you know, lessons learned. We need to do a better job of, of, of engaging at a grassroots level. I think that's been a big issue for our party for a long time. You got to give credit to the Working Families Party that in the last couple of weeks really focused on the ground game uh, in a very effective way. They got a very strong vote on their line, which I think says a lot for for the engagement that WFP puts into the political process. And um, as far as the Democratic Party, I mean, I, I, I don't I don't think it's as simple as saying. You know, it's Jay Jacobs' fault. Uh, I could tell you from my experience, uh, Jay tried very hard to keep focus on a coordinated campaign and a coordinated effort. I I think, you know, the issue probably goes more deeply in terms of how we have to really um, reexamine how we engage our our voters and how we do outreach to uh, independent voters, people who aren't affiliated with a party. I, I I think some of that effort... Uh, fell short uh, this year, and I, and, I, and I think we all bear some responsibility for that. I don't think any one, one person bears responsibility. So just think about it. There were an awful lot of Democrats who were in Queens. Many of them moved to Long Island, and now you see sort of this Long Island resurgence of the Republicans. What's that about? It's very hard to explain because when you look at the enrollment patterns, particularly in Nassau County, 
uh, to a lesser extent in Suffolk, but certainly Nassau, you've seen a huge increase in the number of enrolled Democrats, a combination of people moving in and just you know, just changing demographics, even for, for folks who've, who've grown up there. So to really have, in the case of Nassau, so many more Democrats than Republicans, and, and yet to see the Republicans do so well. Last year also, you remember Laura Curran's defeat as, as county exec came as a big surprise to people. Uh, that should have been a, a, a more clear wake-up call. There was an analysis done by Newsday the other day, uh, which I think made a lot of sense to me. What it really showed, Alan, is that the Democratic turnout was down compared to the last gubernatorial mm. cycle, whereas the Republican turnout was significantly higher uh, based, you know, compared to past trends. That's what we saw last year in the off-year elections uh, in Nassau County as well. So you've got a, an energized Republican base, and I have to give credit to the Republican leader in Nassau County, Joe Cairo. Uh, he is a very effective political leader. He's a great tactician. He really marshaled his forces, and uh, that didn't happen on the Democratic side. So, so supercharged Republican turnout, Democratic turnout down, and uh, Suffolk County similar. Of course, Suffolk County, a part of it very clearly is, is Lee Zeldin was a hometown favorite, so mm. uh, he turned out a big vote. And I think, Alan, this year you saw many people started out on the Republican line, that normally would not have, and they stayed on the line. Mm. So you look at the margin of victory that I had, Chuck Schumer had, for example, uh, less, less, you know, we still did very well. Uh, don't get me wrong. I'll take 57% anytime, but it was down from four years ago. And I think that's because you saw a bigger Republican vote on Long Island in Southern Brooklyn, uh, Southern Queens as well. In certain communities in New York City, there's been a lot of analysis about uh, the Asian American vote uh, going more Republican than you usual, some inroads with the Hispanic vote. So th these should be wake-up calls for the Democratic Party not to take any community for granted. So should the head of the state Democratic Party, Jay Jacobs, resign? Well, look, traditionally uh, the model for how our party has functioned is that the governor, uh, It's the, the, the state chair serves at the pleasure of the governor. So, you know, that, that really is going to be uh, Governor Hochul's call. Uh, thus far as I understand it, she's expressed confidence in Jay. Uh, but I, I do think, you know, based on some of what, you know, the the uh, the day after analysis, uh, it's very clear that our party needs to look inward. And if Jay is going to continue, uh, there has to be outreach to those segments within the party that uh, feel that the party needs different leadership in different directions. So it's going to be the governor's call as to who the chair is going to be. Uh, but if Jay is going to continue, uh, he really has to reach out particularly to the, to the progressive wing of the party that has had, you know, some concerns uh, going back before this election result. But I, I think, you know, generally there, there needs to be a, an examination of how we um, be more effective in reaching out to communities all, all across the state. The rural Democrats, I think, have felt they needed more support that they didn't get. Some of the ethnic communities, you know, we, we saw a loss of votes uh, and as I said, Asian, Hispanic, some of the Jewish community, uh, we saw some changes there that 
that don't bode well if those patterns continue. So we, we, we have to do a lot of internal examination. Let's hope it's not a circular firing squad, which Democrats always do very well. Let's not go after each other. Let's instead say, what, what do we need to do to build on what is clearly a very strong Democratic base? We want to be sure that in the next go-around, we win back some of these House seats that we had lost. We want to win back some of the state Senate seats that were lost. We want to uh, not see a continued erosion. And look, before you know it, we'll be talking about the next presidential cycle, and we want to be sure New York is going to be a strong blue state for our Democratic candidate for president. That's State Comptroller Tom DiNapoli speaking with Legislative Gazette Political Observer Alan Chartok. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The New York State Education Department recently ordered all school districts in the state to remove Indian mascots and associated Native American imagery from the public school system. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas reports. The memo, signed by State Education Department Senior Deputy Commissioner James Baldwin, warned. Districts that continue to utilize Native American team names, logos, and or imagery without current approval from a recognized tribe must immediately come into compliance. Baldwin says the memo was not issued lightly. It is a problem that was cited 21 years ago by then-Commissioner Richard Mills in terms of having safe and nurturing school communities and uh, focusing on respect and academic achievement for all students. This has been a very long-standing issue here in New York. Most recently, about a year and a half ago, the current Board of Regents adopted a policy encouraging school districts to review their own policies, practices related to issues around diversity, equity, and inclusion. The department says districts that fail to commit to replacing such names and logos by the end of the 2022-23 school year may be in violation of the Dignity Act. The penalties for such a violation include the removal of school officers and the withholding of state funding. The memo cited the ongoing controversy surrounding the Cambridge Central School District in New York's Capital Region, which voted to retire its Indians team name, logo, and mascot in June 2021, then reversed the decision a month later after new school board members took office. Community members challenged the reversal, and in August, Education Commissioner Betty Rosa declared the name and imagery violated the State Dignity for All Students Act and had to go. The Washington County District filed an appeal, but a New York State Supreme Court judge decided the commissioner's ruling was valid, and Cambridge was ordered to make the changes by July 1, 2022. The school board then authorized the district's legal counsel to file a notice of appeal. 2007 CCS graduate Dylan Hanyost is Iroquois, a member of the Onondaga Beaver Clan, and lives in the school district. He has supported keeping Cambridge Central's Native American mascot and moniker. The name and logo, you know, is an icon that leads us to the truth. 
when you think about Native Americans and any any icon that you see is is, is about strength, honor, and, you know, pride. It's always a positive symbol to uh, portray the strength of our heritage. According to the State Education Department, more than 50 school districts in New York still employ Native American imagery. Among them, Glens Falls City Schools, which has used the Indians moniker and a red GF with a black arrowhead as a sports logo since 1941. Sky Heritage is the district's director of communications. We have every intention of honoring this ruling that's made by NYSED. Um, and while the order contains a deadline of June 2023 to affirmatively commit to replacing the Native American team name, logo, or imagery, we have not yet determined a timeline for removal of Indian-associated items on our sports uniforms, our furniture, and in our buildings, um, such as the high school gymnasium floor. John Kane is a Native American activist who attended Cambridge schools from the third grade until he graduated from high school in 1978. In 2020, Kane traveled from his western New York home to Cambridge to formally request the district change its name and logo. I think this you know, clearly puts an end to, to the, the battle in Cambridge, and I think that saves a lot of other schools from having to go through the anguish of challenging this debate, I guess. There is a sentence in the Education Department memo which states, those school districts that continue to utilize Native American team names, logos, and or imagery without current approval from a recognized tribe must immediately come into compliance. Kane says whatever the case, he doesn't think Cambridge stands a chance of getting approval from any federally recognized tribe. Baldwin seems to agree. That particular phrase is really targeted at some school districts that are connected to Native American communities. Uh, and in those cases, the tribal government that is served by those school districts have authorized the use of that mascot. This is not intended to have school districts shopping around for tribes to bless their use of such mascots. The Cambridge Central School District Board of Education says it plans to proceed with its appeal of the commissioners and the trial court's decisions. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The leader of one of New York's most vocal environmental watchdog organizations is stepping down. Peter Iwanowitz has served as executive director of Environmental Advocates New York for nine years. He plans to leave at the end of December. Iwanowitz first joined the organization headquartered in Albany in 1995 and worked for two years as a policy advocate. He returned to the organization as executive director in 2013. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard spoke with Iwanowitz about his career at EANY and some of his top concerns about New York State environmental policy. It was back before the Internet was really much of a thing. It was 1995, um, and I literally remember sort of like having to type up a document, put it on a diskette, which many of your listeners don't know what a diskette is, but some should, 
um, bring it to a different computer, open it up there, and then paste it into an email system. That's how long ago this advocacy world has been for me. So I've been, this is going to be, you know, I'm finishing up 30 full years as a frontline advocate, very much in the public eye of doing this work. And that also sort of washed over me of like, now it's time to sort of step back from being so much in the public eye and do some different work that's not so much in the front and allow for this emerging generation of advocates to fill the space. I'll, I'll be there doing work in the, in the area, but not directly in the front lines. What was the main concern in 1995? Do you remember some of the big projects you were working on back then? Yeah, I may be a little bit aged and stuff, but I have a pretty good memory. What I was working on in 1995 is, is eerily similar to things that are going on now. And back in 1995, we were then trying to convince then newly installed uh, Governor George Pataki to continue New York State's relationship by being what we call a California car state that would require auto manufacturers to, to meet those California emission standards in New York. And the reason why I say that we're still dealing with this, we're expecting the Hochul administration, you know, 30 years or almost 30 years later, to be proposing regulations that continue our alliance with California standards by the end of 2022. So it was about clean air. It was about getting um, as clean vehicles as possible on, on New York streets back in 1995, and that continuation still exists to this day. We were working on you know, getting rid of pesticides and exposure to pesticides, um, emerging new industries in the electric sector as the Pataki administration was trying to deregulate the electric industry and usher in more opportunities for energy efficiency and renewables. You know, if we had had more work during that time and more government sort of oomph and industry coming along, we'd be in a better spot climate-wise than we are now. But here we are today, putting the final touches on a climate plan that is going to really usher in full electrification of motor vehicles under the California standards, full electrification of buildings, and, you know, an energy system that's powered by power plants that are zero emissions. So let's talk about the climate plan. You're part of the New York State Climate Action Council, and the climate plan is due to be finalized by January 1st. That's right. The draft scoping plan was released a year ago. What's kind of the feedback that, that you've heard? What stood out to you on the, the climate plan? And what are your expectations as things get finalized over the next few weeks here? Yeah, so earlier this year, the council had public hearings on the draft plan. And what really stood out to me there is this huge pent-up interest on the broad public to get moving faster on climate. Um, 2050 is a goal that they're just really concerned it would, might be too late. And there's, there were so many stories of New Yorkers with this, what I call the can-do spirit and attitude. People that were electrifying their homes and businesses or uh, driving electric cars. Um, some of the hearing locations we had, driving to them, you saw clean energy sources like wind and solar. Um, at one hearing at Brookhaven uh, Town Hall, they have this massive solar array powering their town facilities. So it was kind of a little bit of a weird sort of circumstance because you wanted to move ahead fast on climate and faster. There was a can-do attitude. But then there was a lot of people fighting for the status quo from fossil fuel companies and people in the labor industry who were part of fossil fuel companies really worried about what this transmission would mean for their, for their jobs and their livelihoods. So there was also that palpable fear in some sectors. But what really you know, that I found grateful for in this whole process and what we're hearing is people understand we have to move. This pace and scale of the mood is where move is where people disagree, but everybody believes that the crisis is real in New York. We don't have a lot of deniers 
pushing us not to act. And, um, you know, I think New Yorkers are ready to sort of see the next stages with this whole process as the plan goes final. Let's talk about the Environmental Bond Act. I believe it was a two-thirds margin voted in favor on Election Day this year. Um, your thoughts on the $4 billion bond and what it can do for New York, and, you know, is, is EA 100% behind this one? Oh, yeah, to answer that class question, absolutely. Environmental Advocates NY was really thrilled to see the voters turn out in such overwhelming numbers to support um, basically going further into debt to improve our environment. So taking on the bond issues and the debt associated with that was really important. It was about 68% of voters um, who voted on the question were in support of it. And that's a tremendous result. Um, I just want to also reflect on just a year ago, as you and I talked, um, the voters were also posed with the question, should we add environmental rights to the Constitution? And 70% of voters last fall. So you have two election cycles where voters in New York were given this question, do you want to have a yes or no in the environment? And it's really gratifying for someone who's worked in this industry for a long time to see New Yorkers rise up with very loud yes on environmental rights and a very loud yes this past year on adopting the Environmental Bond Act. So if I'm a politician and they all, they'll say to you, oh, the only poll that matters is an election day, couldn't agree more. And two years in a row, the voters said very loud yes to a stronger, more protected environment. So if I'm a politician in Albany, I'm thinking, I need to be running on the environment, not away from it. Earlier this year, the state legislature passed a moratorium on proof-of-work cryptocurrency mining. The governor has yet to sign that bill, um, but there is pressure for her to do so. She's not really signaled which way she's going to go either way. What do you think, and uh, why is environmental advocates concerned about this form of crypto mining? Well, we, we want to see the governor sign this bill into law. We lobbied hard for it with so many different allies to get this bill signed into law, and the governor really needs to do it. We need that time out to really assess what this new, quote, industry will mean in terms of our emissions uh, standards in New York State. We need to be driving down our greenhouse gas emissions. Um, we can't be opening up, you know, facilities like this that are going to make that challenge harder. So I think they made the right decision by denying a permit, a renewal of a permit for one of these facilities in the Fingers Lakes already this year. And by signing the moratorium in the law, they can really sort of let the climate law unfold um, and have a better sense of whether we can afford adding a big emitting source like this into New York State's industry. That's Peter Iwanowitz, outgoing executive director of Environmental Advocates New York, speaking with the Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2247. Or just listen online at wamc.org or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino.